Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the text that we're going to cover today is the stream in the mountain from which everything else in Ephesians flows. We're going to zero in on this theme that we have seen and will continue to see throughout the book, the theme of grace. And it's no exaggeration to say that this stream, everything in Ephesians flows out from it. All of the advice and and counsel about racial reconciliation, about parents and kids, about husbands and wives, about work, about speech, about spiritual warfare, about blessing, all of it flows from this source, the very grace of God. So we're going to take one uh, sermon today and walk through kind of the beginning of this text, and I just couldn't fit everything we needed in this text, and so next week we're going to be hitting the last two verses, kind of the application section. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, this is God's glorious word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and and. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes. Lord, help us to take in. Oh, just the glorious truth of your grace and the way that it changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians, as I mentioned, one of the most important terms in the book is grace. Now, the problem is that grace often fades into the wallpaper of Christian life or fades into the wallpaper of even American Christianity, uh, kind of cultural Christianity. Everybody knows the song Amazing Grace and has probably heard it sung at a funeral. People have seen coffee mugs with grace on it. We, we've, we've said previously as we opened the book that grace can be defined simply biblically as God's unmerited favor. But as we press into the reality and the truth of grace today, I want to kind of impress on you the relationship between the gap and grace, not the store, not the 2000s clothing store that I think is still, is it still around? 
I never know. Um, I don't know what survived the pandemic. The, the gap is fine. It can stay in the past, but not meaning that. Gap. The gap between what we deserve and would receive apart from God's grace and what we do receive and who we are with grace. That gap between who we were and who we are, that gap is the measure of God's grace. So the question today is just how wide is that gap? Now, I knew a Christian brother uh, here in El Paso who died and then came back to life. And I don't mean this like metaphorically. Um, He was not a Christian as a teenager, but he was invited to a youth camp uh, somewhere in New Mexico. I won't say which one it is just in case they might get sued. Uh, At the camp, there was a pond. It was a sketchy pond. Uh, kind of one of those like kind of ponds, the kind of pond that other kids at the youth camp dare some of the, the, the kids to swim in, right? And the dare was, how far can you swim out into the pond? And there was kind of a pylon at the back of the pond. And so uh, this, this Christian brother decides, so now Christian, wasn't Christian then, he decides to swim out and he goes further and further and he just kills everybody. He's going so far out, he thinks, I'm going to go touch the, this pylon over here. What he did not know was that the pylon had li- a live electrical current running through it. And due to faulty wiring, there was a live electrical current near the pylon. So as soon as he swims out to the pylon, he is electrocuted, his heart stops, his lungs fill with water, and everyone on the shore assumes he's playing some sort of practical joke because he's not coming up out of the water. Finally, after a minute or two, somebody realizes, I think he's actually in trouble. They swim out, they bring him back to the shore, and they look for a pulse, no pulse. They listen for his breath, no breath. They, they try to do CPR, unsuccessful. His lungs are filled with water. His heart is stopped. They call an ambulance, but of course, they're in an isolated area. Who knows how long it's going to take to get the ambulance there. He was medically dead for several minutes. We're not talking about like a 30-second, like he died, and they shocked him, and he came back. I mean, he is lifeless. So they without anything else to do, they pray for him. And in a miracle, he coughs and wakes up. He, he, he literally just kind of bolts upright and, want, and asks them, what happened? And they're like, everybody has already started to mourn him, right? Everybody's going through the stages of grief and he just sits up, whoa, he was alive. Once dead, now alive. And Ephesians 2 is going to lay out the fact that the gap that is between who we were and where we were going and who we are in Christ and where we are going in Christ, the gap is not a small gap. It's not a little gap. It is as wide as death to life. That's what we're going to see this morning. So three sections today. The first is this, what we were. Paul begins with perhaps the uh, darkest opening line that you could start a section of the Bible with. 
This is the kind of section that if you're looking kind of for some quick encouragement from your Bible at some point, you're flipping through, oh, where can God give me some encouragement? It's probably not Ephesians 4.1. You're there with your coffee and your, your mug, and you're like, oh, Lord, please help me. And you read Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead. Nobody has that on a mug at home. Look at, look at Paul's diagnosis of the human condition apart from Christ is not that we're ill, not that we're in trouble, not that we need a hand up, not that we need a hand out. It is that we are dead. Now, let me ask you this. Maybe you're resisting that a little bit. Like, well, that seems pretty stark. Listen, is our world around us not profoundly broken? Is there not war and evil and injustice running rampant through many corners of the world? Is there not public scandal plastered all over the internet? Is there not domestic abuse that is quietly hidden? Is there not across every continent and every nation and every city, is there not cruelty and anger and betrayal and loss all around us? Look, I think if you, if you take off Listen, you got to take off the veneer of American advertising where the world is filled with happy people using products that change their lives and look at the actual world. It is dead. I think we would be forced to agree with Paul. It is dead. In fact, no major kind of worldview or philosophy is built on the assumption that everything is great, right? I don't know any religion that's like, everything's fine. No, there is something wrong. Everybody knows it. The question is, what is wrong with us? Well, Paul diagnoses not just our condition, but the source of our condition. Paul says we are in something that causes this deadness. And you were dead in what? The trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul is mixing metaphors here. He is saying, look, you're dead, but somehow are still walking around like a zombie shambling its way down the road after the apocalypse. That is the picture here. Some of you guys didn't know zombies were in the Bible. There they are. And surprise... The zombie you find is the one staring at you in the mirror. We are walking in a pattern of death, in transgression and sin. Now, these two words work together. Transgression is when you cross the boundary line and you do something that you should not do. And a sin is when you fall short. So what's in view here is kind of a, a full picture of sin, that sin is, you're dead in this sin in which you both fall short of things you know you should do and do things you know you should not do. I mean, just review your week, review your year, review your decade. Have there been any things that you think later on, I really should have done that. I should have been there for that person. I should have gone to my child when he was crying instead of been just going on with my day. I should have called that friend. Every, everybody has these. And there are things you know you should not have done, words that you wish you could take back, things that you said at work or to a spouse or to a child, right, or to a friend. We all are aware of these things. And Paul is saying, listen, those aren't just occasional problems. That, that is something in which we walk. We're not dipping our toe in sin. We are in it. 
swimming in it. And Paul explains further in, in kind of almost morose detail what this looks like. We are in a pattern in which we follow the world, we follow the devil, and we follow our flesh. First, we follow the world. John Stott has this to say. He says, so both words, age and world, express a social value system which is alien to God. It permeates, indeed dominates, non-Christian society and holds people in captivity wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, which is repudiating God, which is an outlook that is amoral, repudiating right and wrong, or an outlook that is materialistic, which is glorifying the things we consume, by poverty and hunger or unemployment, a racial discrimination, by any form of injustice, there, right there, we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. And here is the reality. It's not as though here's the world and we're like, uh-uh, we're not going over there. Paul says, no, you're in it. You swim in the stream with the world, these, these values, this deadness that permeates. Not only that, it gets worse. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's interesting that that language I was reading with one particular commentary of the prince of the power of the air it, one of the things it may be referring to you is kind of a gloomy darkness where, where it's almost like this, where Satan is, things get dark and gloomy and cloudy such that it's hard to see the sun. He obscures who God is and, and, and right and wrong. And that spirit, it says, is now at work in the people who are disobedient, meaning the devil's children are all those who well, follow the course of the world. Follow willingly him. Uh, in, in a sense, the devil is the siren song, as we saw in Revelation, calling people to their doom, and yet when people listen to it, they follow willingly and joyfully, right up until the very end. And then we think, okay, well, listen, the deadness isn't, isn't our fault, right? I mean, th these people are doing this to me. I mean, I, the, the world is over there pulling me. The devil is over there pulling me. And then Paul dives down further in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of whose flesh? Our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which literally is our body and our mind. Now, this perhaps is the most offensive thing among the many offensive things that Paul is saying here. He's saying that the problem is not just out there somewhere. The problem is in here. The problem is staring at us in the mirror. The language is that our flesh, our humanity apart from Christ, has passions and desires. And those desires are us saying along with the world and with Satan, yes. Yes, we should disobey. We should disregard right and wrong. We should blur the line between justice and injustice or call evil justice and call injustice a good thing. This is what we want to do. Now, this is incredibly offensive because our world uh, tells us over and over and over again that the problem and the fix are this. The problem is that you don't listen to your heart enough and the fix is, listen to your heart and do whatever it tells you. That's, that's kind of our world's kind of assumption. Okay, great. The bad things are happening out there. The solution is this. Follow 
your heart. We say with one famous filmmaker, ah, the heart wants what the heart wants. We must, we must pursue it. We believe that our problems in life fall, well, from us either not listening to our biology or us not, not listening to what we desire in our minds. I mean, our biology, for example, our biology is wired toward sex. And, and, and then we say, well, great, if that's what we're wired to in our body, we must have it at all costs. If I find it outside of my marriage, fine, I must have it. Or the desires of our mind. It's just, okay, I desire to do this. I want to do this. I must do this. But the Bible says there is actually deadness down the path of self-glorification, self sort of steering in life. Our deadness and sin means that many of the, the good things and the good desires that God has given us get twisted and turned and bent such that when we listen to our body and mind, often, sometimes, and often, it is destructive to ourselves and others. Do you know who coined the famous phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants? It was Woody Allen trying to explain why he left his wife for his stepdaughter. He was just listening to his heart. Now look, this is the state then we are in. There's deadness inside of us. We follow this world that is dead. We follow Satan who encourages us and calls us toward this path of deadness. And look then at our trajectory. Look at we are, where we are heading as a result. It says this, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if you could draw our trajectory line from where we are to where we are going, the trajectory is not positive. The trajectory is not just death, but justice, true justice, merciful justice from God who must judge evil and sin and wickedness. All of this leads us to an inevitable appointment before the throne of God where we would see God's justice roll down. That's who we were. That's what Paul says about it. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. And if you're struggling with this at all and you're like, well, I don't know if the human condition is really that bad, I'd encourage you to walk through Romans 1 to 3. And, and you think, well, well, maybe there's other sections of the Bible that are more positive about our, our condition. No, Paul, in Romans 3, takes a string of pearls, as it were, from all the different parts of the Old Testament to build a portrait. No, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And, and, and here's the reality. I think one of the reasons we resist this as human beings is if we could look all the way down into our heart of hearts, we know that it's true. We all do things we don't want to do. And we leave things undone that should be done. And we know that if we stood with our deeds and lives exposed, none of us could stand. That's where we were. Now, look then at the gap. So here's where we were, and now here's the gap in the middle. Every single worldview takes where we are, looks at where we are, and says, okay, that's a problem. We need to fix that. We need to figure out how to get from where we are to where we kind of want to be or desire to be. We want to get ourselves out of this deadness. And, 
Ephesians 2, as we will talk much more about next week, Ephesians 2 gives us the human kind of bridge that we try to use over this gap. And the human bridge to solve the problem of where we are and where we want to be is this, merit. It's work, it's merit. Now, if I, stick with me for a second here. There's two types of social media posts that I think are incredibly common in our world today. And maybe you fall into one of these two camps. I feel like there's the two warring camps on social media all the time. The first group is the rise and grind group. The pe- you guys are the people posting at like 5 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. at the gym as early as you can, 3.55 a.m. at the gym, you know, getting in a quick two hours before the work day, you know, or the people posting about like these super food, healthy meals that you've constructed and somehow like not cooked, you want them raw for some reason, God has given us fire and you're just like, no, we're just going to do this, we're just going to eat raw, rejecting the good gift of God, and, and I'm just kidding, and so you're just like, okay, we're going to do this, we're gonna, we're, or, or even perhaps it is career-oriented, right, boom, made this sale, did this deal, Top seller, top this person, top that person, right? And you're just, you're like, boom, we're going to, we're going to like, and so here's, here's the reality. Our, our culture knows that there's a problem and knows, okay, we're here, we should be there, so the solution is rise and grind. Let's do it. Hard work. Let's make it happen. I will manage more stores. I will make more money. I will have bigger biceps, whatever it is. And then the other group is like, no, 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 no. You need to love yourself. You need to love your flaws. You need to love, you know, this part of your body. You need to love the fact that you're, you haven't figured it out and you're 38 years old and you've had 10 careers. It's fine. Love yourself, right? Accept yourself. Self-care. You guys are doing the self-care post. Self-care. It's always at Target. Self-care. <laughs> a coffee. <laughs> Vitamins. You know, whatever. I, I don't know. And so you have the the rise and grind people that are like, we will achieve where we want to be through straight up hard work and merit. And then the other group that's like, no, 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 you already merit. You're already worth it. You're already wonderful. You're already perfect. And here's where they meet. I've noticed that everybody meets in the middle at the you deserve it post. You deserve this time off. You deserve this vacation. You deserve that relationship. And here's, here's what's happening. Either you think I deserve it because of what I've done or I deserve it because of who I am innately and I don't have to do anything. But either way, you're trying to get from who you are and where you are to where you want to be through merit. I deserve it. And this is humanity as a whole. This is every philosophical system. This is every human culture, every religion apart from Christ is built on merit, right? Maybe in the East, you have an honor-shame society where you sacrifice for the community, but merit inclusion because of your sacrifices. You do what needs to be done, but you merit being included and celebrated in the community. Or maybe there's a religious system where you pray, pray enough or chant enough or ascend mentally enough or attend services enough so that you, in the end, will avoid hurt and merit blessing. I'm good enough because of these things I've done, therefore don't hurt me, and therefore I should get what I want. 
And this is everything from super legalistic churches on this end to super health and wealth churches on this end. Super legalistic churches, do this, wear this, you know, don't, don't, wear, don't, don't wear this, you have to wear this, you can only do this. And if you do, you'll merit getting what you want out of God. Or you need to believe, you need to give, you need to do all this stuff, and then you will merit what you want out of God. Two problems with this. First, it doesn't solve the real issue. Listen, none of that merit can cover who we actually are. Listen, on that last day when we are exposed before God, our merit will not pay the bill. Look, Scripture actually says that our righteousness, our merit is as filthy rags when we hold it up in the light of the, the justice and purity of God. That's the problem. Even if, if you could merit something, well, you can't merit anything. And when you stand before God, you see how very little there is that you've merited at all. In fact, all you've merited is often more justice for your self-righteousness, rise and grind people, and self-righteousness in the I'm worth it camp. All of it is just more. Second, here's the second problem. It does not bring you to life. It cannot bring you to life. Look, one of my uh, favorite old movies, because I'm a weirdo and a nerd, is the classic black and white universal movie, Frankenstein. And if you've never seen the movie, you've seen clips online or whatever with the crazy doctor going around yelling, it's alive, it's alive, you know, and he's saying, I am God now, I've made it, ha, 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 you know, and he, you know, raises the thing all the way up to the top, and there's lightning, and then he brings it down, and the hand twitches, and the guy stands up, and you're like, and, and he's really excited, but what is everybody else there thinking? That's not good. <laughs> this is not going to end well. And then they ask the monster, basically, like, are you happy you're alive? And he's like, no. I'm a weird walking corpse. Now I got to burn down a, you know, a windmill, which is what happens in the movie. So here's, here's the reality. All of our attempts, humanly speaking, to bridge the gap between who we are and where we are and who we want to be and where we want to be with merit are no better than us Frankenstein, Dr. Frankensteining something to life that only leads to a kind of living death. Here's the reality. There is no life when it comes to merit. You might, you might think, well, I feel more alive. No, no, no. It's just another kind of death. We just keep dying and bringing ourselves alive with all of these human systems. And, and maybe for a second, you're like, well, my hand's twitching. No, that's not good. That's a zombie hand. Here's the reality. There is no bridge from where we are to where we should be with human merit, not by works, Paul says. So what then is the solution? What then gets us from verse three to anywhere in the Bible? Those two glorious words in verse four, but God. We're over here, this is where we should be and need to be, and we're just jumping off the cliff. And some people jump further than others, but there is no bridge, there is no hope, there is, there is only a trajectory toward destruction. So what changes? Those two words change everything. But God. 
He intervenes. He steps into the gap. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And look at verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Why did God intervene? Why would God jump into the gap? Look at those three phrases in verse 4. He was rich in mercy. (laughs) Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We had a whole pile of things that we deserved. We think, oh, I deserve, I deserve this coffee. No, you deserve a lot more and you don't want to receive it. But God gives us in mercy, he does not give us rather, in mercy what we deserve. And then he goes further, by grace he gives us what we do not deserve. Do you see how glorious this is? Not only do we not receive what we deserve, we then receive what we do not deserve. That's insane. Either one of those would be insane, but both of them together is absolutely insane. Why would God do this? Look at the explanation in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of The great love with which he loved us. Look, here's a reality. What did we have that merited the love of God? Nothing. Why then would God love us? This is perhaps the greatest mystery of all scripture greater than the Trinity, greater than the Incarnation, greater than even human sovereignty and divine, uh, human responsibility and divine sovereignty as we talked about a couple weeks ago. The greatest mystery, I think, in all of Scripture is this. Why would God love us? Why would he step in? And the explanation we get essentially in verse four is this. God loves us because he loves us. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he loves us. Look, friend, if you're here today, I want you to feel that. I want you to receive that. Why would God love you? You're aware of your faults. You're aware of your failures. You're aware of your, 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 your brokenness and, and the things in your past you wish would never come out. Why would God step in for, in the middle of this gap for you? Why would he do that? Because he loves you. the most insane mystery in all of Scripture. What moved God toward our living, dead corpse headed for judgment? Nothing in us. His mercy, His grace, His love. We just sang that song. That's one of the best lines, I think, in, in kind of modern worship lyrics. The line, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. I mean, that, that, is, that is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. Now, perhaps though you're saying, well, well, listen, he loves us, but don't we do a little bit of something? Don't we have to reach out? Don't we have to believe? Don't we have to kind of, kind of choose to follow God? I mean, so God does maybe 90% of the work or 99% of the work, but we, we also are in there, man. We're also kind of, we're grabbing the hand that's, that's gonna save us. No, no, no. Notice then the phrasing, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Tony Meredith says this. Notice what Paul says. It is God's gift. It includes faith. The grammar indicates that the whole of salvation is to be viewed as a gift. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. We should never think of salvation as a transaction in which God provides grace and we provide faith. No! It is all grace. As we talked about a few weeks ago, what brings a lifeless body on the bottom of the ocean to life? It is not that lifeless body grabbing a life preserver. It is the God of the universe diving into the depths after it, bringing us to the surface and bringing us to life. Now look, briefly, I want to lay out then how wide the gap is between who we are, who we were, and who we are in Christ. So listen to this, who we are, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul wants us to get that, even when that, made us alive together with Christ. And then he interrupts himself. By grace you have been saved. Look, these phrases, made us alive together with Christ, and then verse six, raised us up with him, and then the next phrase, seated us with him. These three phrases, oh, are some of the most glorious phrases in all of scripture. Think of it. He, Listen to what it's saying. We're, at the, we're dead at the bottom of the ocean, and so God does three things. First, he dives in after us, and he makes us alive. He sparks our heart. In the Old Testament language, he takes our heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. He transplants our heart at the bottom of the ocean floor, brings it to life, doesn't stop there, raises us up with Christ when he rose from the dead, and then he doesn't just stop there, he then raises us further and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Look, salvation is not just us going from the bottom of the ocean floor to the boat on the surface of the ocean. Salvation is us going from the bottom of the ocean floor to to an alive heart, to the boat, into the heavens forever. I mean, that, that, that... That gap could not be wider. How then is this possible? How then is this possible? Because of a prefix. All the grammar nerds are like, oh yeah. (laughs) The prefix sin, right? S-Y-N. Tony Merida talks about how Paul actually coins those, he modifies the three normal words to to be with Christ. So, Uh, made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. He says this about it. Paul uses a compound word to declare that we have been raised together, synergen, which has the prefix sin. We know this from computers. We get the word sync from it, short for synchronize. We sync our phones with our computers in order to transfer the music on the computer to the phone. Well, we were synced with Christ. What God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. In some astonishing way, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, you, Christian, got up with him. Now, how is it possible? Because of grace... We were united with Christ such that all that Christ accomplished, we were, in a sense, synced with that we might go from death to life, from the tomb to an empty tomb, from an empty tomb 
to the heavens themselves. And look then at our trajectory. Look at how our trajectory utterly changes. Once it was headed toward destruction, verse seven, he, he did all of this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It means, church, that in the ages to come, God's purpose, God's intent is to use those ages to show for us the to show to us the rich storehouse of favor and kindness that is pointed toward us in Christ. If you could say it this way, going from death to life, from the bottom of the ocean to the boat, from the bottom from the boat to the heavens and and God says, "We're not even done yet. In the ages to come, I have storehouses of grace to pour out." Just wait. Do you see how wide the gap is, church? The gap between who we were and who we now are in Christ. Between where we were going and where we are going now in Christ. Look, the the Christian brother I told you about at the beginning who drowned and then came back to life uh, would often tell people, he'd often kind of share this story with a smile and say, hey, let me tell you about the greatest miracle in my life. And so he would describe this story about dying dramatically at a camp with unsafe electrical wiring and coming back to life. And then he would smile and say, but that's not the day I became a Christian. In fact, after, this is what's crazy about that story. After that, like he literally dies, comes back to life. Everybody who prayed for him is like, God is alive, right? Get one of those moments like, yes, Lord. And do you think at that moment he became a Christian? No. And I was just like, bro, what is wrong with you? He's like, I know, I know. He dies, comes back to life, and his response is, that's crazy. Dang. Anyway, you know, just, and he just keeps going in life. And then he would recount how one day, as he read the Bible, God made him alive. And he says it was like a switch coming on in his mind where he understood who he once was and where he was going, and who he was rather, and where he was going and what God in Christ offers to do for him. And in that moment, he doesn't even remember having faith. All he remembers is he was dead and all of a sudden is alive with Christ. And he, he would say, that is the greatest miracle of my life. Look, this, this is my burden, guys. Our world is filled with Dr. Frankensteins, including us, who are in vain trying to, bring, to take our deadness and make something alive out of it. Because deep down, we know something is very wrong with us. So we try this, and we try that, and this best-selling book, and this religion, and this rise and grind thing, and this love yourself trajectory, and all of it is just restarting a heart back into a state of deadness in which we follow our hearts to the grave. 
which we follow the world to the grave, follow Satan to the grave, all of it, over and over and over. But God offers something better. I think it's so telling uh, in Frankenstein that the doctor, when he brings the the Frankenstein monster to, to life, he doesn't shout, he's alive. He shouts, it's alive. Which I feel like is such a tell, it's like, it's like, yeah, that sums up the human experience. It, I don't know what it is, and it's kind of gross, but it's kind of alive. But, but God offers something better in Christ. The pronouncement over Jesus is he is alive. And the pronouncement over every person, man or woman, who places their faith in Christ is he is now alive too. She is now alive too. Look, I want you to get this. Fundamentally, what Christianity offers is not help for parenting. It's not saving somebody's marriage. It's not helping somebody succeed more at work. It's not helping somebody exceed, you know, feel more peace. And all of those things are good and none of those things are bad. But fundamentally, the poster hanging out in front of every church should not be Help for parenting, or you'll have more peace at home and relieve your anxiety. The, the, the poster hanging out in front of every Christian and every church should be this. Resurrections offered here. Because what we have to offer the world is not just a little bit of help here, a little bit of help there. It is death to life. And look, if you're not a Christian today, I don't think it's an accident that God brought you to our church And I just want to encourage you, if you feel something sparking in your heart that you have not before, that is the Lord at work in you. And I just want to encourage you, what you need fundamentally is not a better method of doing life. It is a new life. And it's offered in Christ. And he offers to save you. Romans 3 says this, through faith, this salvation is offered through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including you, including every one of us, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, friend, if you would repent of your sins, if you would cling to Christ in faith, He'll bring you from death to life today. He'll change your trajectory today. And listen, as as we close, I just want to say this as a church. um, If you have noticed, our church name is Cross of Grace. And sometimes when I tell people that, they're just like, oh, that sounds nice. You know, I don't know. I haven't found anybody that's like offended by that. How dare you? How dare you? You know, usually when I tell people, they're like, oh, nice, you know? Grace is a nice word in our culture. Here is my burden, that in a city filled with religion and even filled with crosses that people wear around their neck or put in their home and have no idea what it really means, in a city filled with religion that we hold out and hold up the cross of the grace of God. That is what every neighbor you have truly longs for. Uh, I think it's Keller who says that the deepest desire of the human heart can be summed up in this, that we desire to be fully known and fully loved. 
That is impossible in the world. Because as soon as we're fully known, we will never be fully loved. Only God offers both, that he sees into the depths of our hearts and still loves us. That you can't get anywhere else. So church, may we be faithful that in all we do and all we hold out to the world around us, we hold out by all means encouragement and help and practical neighborliness and working hard and parenting well, that we do all of those things as we'll talk about to the glory of God, but the predominant thing, the source of the stream of our Christian life as it were, would be the grace of God. And next week we'll talk a bit about what that looks like. Would you stand and let's, let's end here and pray. Lord, I pray that as we sing about your grace, you would seal the reality of the grace of God in our hearts. Lord, may we walk around just aware, just amazed of who we once were and who we are, where we were going and where we are going. Lord, may that gap filled with the grace of God amaze us for our entire Christian lives. We pray for your help. We pray that you would keep us amazed. In Jesus' name, amen.